Are we going to turn to God's word and read it together? So if you would pray with me. Lord God, we thank you that you have caused your word, the Bible, to be written down for our learning. Please enable us now to read it properly, to hear it, to learn it, to understand it, to take it to heart so that we might be encouraged and strengthened, that we might embrace it and always hold firmly to it, that we might truly know that joyful hope of everlasting life which you have revealed in your word through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 3, HUD's going to come and read us from Jer- to, to us from Jeremiah and from John. Good morning, everyone. Um, let's turn now to uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 21 and read through to chapter 4, verse 4. A cry I heard on the barren heights, the weeping and pleading of the people of Israel, because they have perverted their ways <clears throat> and forgotten the Lord their God. Return, faithless people. I will cure your backsliding. Yes, we will come to you, for you are the Lord our God. Surely the idolatrous commotion of the hills and mountains is a deception. Surely in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. From our youth, Shameful gods have consumed the fruits of our ancestors' labour, their flocks and herds, their sons and daughters. Let us lie down in our shame, let us, uh, and let our disgrace cover us. We have sinned against the Lord our God. But we and our ancestors, from our youth till this day, we have not obeyed the Lord our God. If you, Israel, return, then return to me. If you put your detestable idols out of my sight and no longer go astray, and if in truthful and just and righteous ways you swear as surely as the Lord lives, then the nations will invoke blessings by him and in him they will boast. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your unploughed ground. Do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. For my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. The next part now I'm reading is from John's Gospel. Um, um, James, I mean, not John's Gospel, James. Chapter 3. 
uh, let us read from uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is the wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbour bitter hearts, uh, I'm sorry, if you harbour bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic, demonic. And where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will dis, uh, there you will find disorder and evil every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives and you may spend what you get. And the third reading comes from John Gospel, chapter 14. <clears throat> Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me also, Jesus said. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to I'm sorry, I read it again. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and I'll take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. And you know the way to the place where I am. Here ends the reading from God's Word. Thanks, Hud. If you want to turn your Bibles back to James, that's where we're focusing this morning. And we're dealing with the issue of disguises, of being in disguise. Uh, we just... Saw Halloween happen this week, although I'm not sure if you actually saw much happen. Uh, I certainly didn't in my neck of the woods. Uh, there's not much here, it being, I guess, much more an American tradition. Uh, but we saw it through all the media and also in the shops. The shops were doing a lot of it. But people dressing up, and people, I think people love dressing up to a large degree. We love to put on a disguise and pretend to be 
something else, a different character, whether it's from um, James, who loves to dress up as Spider-Man, or whether it's through teenagers who seem to like to put on the pretense of being scary or having a real ghoulish look to them, or whether it be as adults where we love to put on and pretend sometimes when we're in the company of others, without maybe a physical mask, but sometimes we still pretend to be someone we're not. Uh, there's, a, there's a great attraction we have. We wear disguises. Uh, but disguises can be problematic, can't they? Because they hide us from the reality. That's what they're designed to do, to stop us seeing reality. And the Bible warns us of disguises. And Jesus warns us of those who would come to the church in disguise. You know, he said, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. The Bible at many points tries to help us see through the disguise, warns us teaches us how to recognize it. And that's exactly what happens in this section of James. I don't know if you noticed that as we were reading it earlier. James is warning his readers that there's actually, there's two different types of wisdom. There's two different types of wise person. There's true, real wisdom. And there's what's disguised as wisdom, what's claimed as wisdom, but is really not. Uh, I don't know know if you noticed this. Uh, I love this here. And we read the passage. And we get down to verse 15, and it talks about this disguised wisdom. You notice the, the little punctuation they've put in there? Such wisdom. It's not real wisdom. This is what someone else has called wisdom. We're just, we're just using the word because so you know what we're talking about. It's not wisdom at all. It's this falsely claimed wisdom. There's two, there's two competing wisdoms on show in this passage. And I think as we, as we read it, I hope you heard it, uh, James is very clear about these two alternatives. I'm not going to spend a lot of time unpacking it, because I think James does a pretty good job. Uh, But let's just go through very quickly some of the key distinctives of these two wisdoms. What does it tell us about them? Well, there's first of all, there is the wisdom that is from heaven. True wisdom is from heaven. It comes down. It's given to us. See, verse 15, such wisdom does not come down from heaven. That's the fake wisdom. Verse 17, but the wisdom that does come down from heaven, there's, see, there's a source difference. True wisdom comes from heaven. It's given from God. Where does this other wisdom come from? Well, not from heaven, from elsewhere. It comes from our own rebellious hearts, 
sinful people. It comes from earthly thinking. It's described as unspiritual. Therefore, it's not the work of the Holy Spirit. It's even described as being demonic. It's the work of those forces of evil to deceive us down this track. True wisdom is from heaven. False wisdom, fake wisdom is from below. Uh, What do we see? What's the key attitudes that are expressed in these wisdoms? Well, in the true wisdom, so at the very start, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. The key attitude of true wisdom is seen in humility. What's the attitude that comes with false wisdom? You keep reading. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Bitter envy, selfish ambition. Again in verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. This is the key attitude. It's humility versus selfishness, isn't it? Having a healthy, balanced respect for others, not seeing yourself as the most important, most significant person in the world versus selfishness. The egocentrism places you at the center, the middle. Your desires, your needs, driven by that. That's the key attitude. Humility versus envy, selfishness. What is this? And what does this progress to in relationships with others? What do we see in the passage? Well, humility, this godly wisdom that comes from above. What is it like? Wisdom that comes down from heaven is first of all pure. That's in, it doesn't have ulterior motives. It's sincere, has integrity. Then peace loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now notice some of these particular attributes of ways of relating to other people are things that James has already touched on in his letter. This true wisdom that expresses itself in these ways, picks up the things he's already been hammering home for his readers. He wants them to have true religion, looking after widows and orphans. That sounds like being full of mercy, doesn't it? Good fruit. He wants them to be impartial, i.e. not to show favoritism that he's dealt with in the start of chapter 2. He wants them to be submissive, to have an appropriate respect for authorities uh, that he's mentioned at the start of chapter 3. Authorities, it shouldn't be a responsibility that shouldn't be taken lightly. True wisdom 
works out in these relational ways. How does false wisdom work out? Badly. What does it lead to? Fights and quarrels, doesn't it? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Those selfish ambitions? That envy? You desire but you don't have, so you kill. That escalated quickly, didn't it? Now, it's possible it's talking about literal murder here, that even though he's writing to believers, those who would be counted within the church, it's possible that some of them have descended to this place where their desires, led astray by this false wisdom of the world, has actually erupted into physical murder. But it's possible it's talking also about just that metaphoric sense of leading to do damage through hateful actions to others instead of restoring life, instead of building up, seeks to cut down. Jesus warns of the false prophets uh, when, he, when he speaks about them in John's gospel and he talks about them in relation to being shepherds of the sheep. Talks about the thieves, they come only to kill and destroy. These are people within the church who come to take advantage of the sheep. What are they driven by? Selfish desires. They're led to fight and quarrel, kill and envy and just concerned about what they can get out of it. How does true wisdom relate to others? Well, in ways that get on well, doesn't it? Successfully. How does false wisdom relate to others? Damagingly, problematically, with hostility. What are these wisdoms motivated by? Well, we've already seen that the true wisdom is motivated by a pure heart, by a desire for sincerity. There's no mixed motives. What is the false wisdom motivated by? Selfish desires again, isn't it? When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. It's that worldly hedonism driven by what's going to feel best now. Finally, what's the evidence of these different types of wisdom? Jesus said, when he warned of the false prophets, by their fruit you will recognize them. And James says the same thing here, doesn't he? Who is wise among you? That rhetorical question at the start. Who is wise among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom.
But the alternative is false wisdom that comes from envy and selfish ambition. There you find disorder and every evil practice. The wisdom reveals itself in behavior in life. And this is, I guess it's another angle, isn't it, on the same thing that James has already expressed about faith. Faith and deeds are connected. You can't just separate them and have one without the other. They go together. So to wisdom and behavior, they go together. In fact, I think it's probable that the wisdom he's talking about here is, it's not just engineering skills or street smarts. It's, he's talking about Christian wisdom, the wisdom of faith. He's talking in the context of people, of, of what leaders and the way they speak. And potentially here he's carrying on the same theme. Who, who are the people who you should be following? Who are the wise people, those who are mature in faith? Well, as faith is expressed in deeds, those who are wise in faith will be seen for their good life. See, the disguise, the fake wisdom versus the reality. Now, our world is very good at promoting what's not good for us, isn't it? Uh, advertising, the media, all that kind of the whole mechanism is good at getting us to think in certain ways, getting us to feel in certain ways getting us to act in certain ways. But it's not driven by God's wisdom, is it? The cycles of our society, the, the general trajectory of our culture, it doesn't have God's wisdom at heart. It's driven by, largely, envy and selfish ambition. People live for what they can get out of it. Wanting to spend what you get on your desires, on your pleasures, that's a pretty good, pretty accurate summary of the way many people live today, isn't it? Although James was writing this 2,000 years ago, he's touching on the human condition false wisdom of the world it's present today just as much and you know what there's a danger of it still being present not just in the world but in the church james is writing to believers he's writing to those he calls brothers and sisters uh, believers particularly of jewish descent but they're members of churches and they're wrestling with this problem. What is real wisdom? What is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom? How do we keep seeing the difference? Identify it. How do we grow in true wisdom? Well, James doesn't point us to the ultimate answer here, but he gives us that hint, doesn't he? That the real wisdom 
comes down from heaven. It's given to us by God. And Paul, as he writes in a quite similar context, he writes to a church that's dealing with issues of division and there's seems to be disputes and arguments about leadership. He writes uh, in 1 Corinthians 1. It is because of him, it's because of God, that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Where do we turn to see this wisdom that God has come down from heaven, that God has provided? Well, it's in Jesus, isn't it? Predictable answer. It's in Jesus. But that's the reality. Jesus embodies the life that's lived in God's wisdom. And remember, this is very different from the world's wisdom. It's it's a completely upside-down way of thinking. God's wisdom is that God would enter creation as taking the form of a creature, as a baby in humility. God's wisdom would be that the king, the one who is promised to reign over the world forever, would be crucified. In God's wisdom, the wrongs of the world, the sins we have committed, the rebellion of humanity against God can be forgiven. In God's wisdom, those who are dead can be made alive. Now, this doesn't fit with the world's wisdom, does it? It's an upside-down way of thinking. It's an upside-down reality. But this is the wisdom that we see in Jesus Christ. We see his life live it out. And even though it might appear foolishness to people, this is God's wisdom. Who is wise among you? What's the one who recognizes true wisdom in Jesus? It's the one whose hope and life is found in that. The one who is shaped more and more by God's way of seeing the world. Not by the world's way. Don't we want that? Do you want to be wise in this way? I hope you do. Because I want us to be wise in this way. I want us to be a church who is wise, who is rich in God's wisdom. How do we do it? Well, James has already told us, chapter 1. If any of you is lacking wisdom, let him ask God who gives freely without finding fault. God gives wisdom to those who ask. But he gives a warning at that time about asking with consistency, with sincerity, not with wrong motives like the people who ask here who just ask because they want some selfish gain out of it to spend on their pleasures. we, We ask God that we might grow to be more like Jesus we might see more like he sees the world, that we might live it out in a way that 
is more consistent. Not for our own benefit, but for his glory. Don't get me wrong, we, we will benefit. When we live wisely, it's good for us. Even though it's upside down to the world, it's foolishness to them. It's actually the best way. The friends, pursue this wisdom in Christ. Guard against that selfish ambition and envy of the world. Now, that affects us in, as individuals in many ways. Fight against it. Seek to be someone who rejoices with others, who is thankful. Fight. It's, a, it's a way to combat envy, isn't it? To being thankful for what you have. To be thankful for what others have. Guard against that selfish ambition. But I think this, this particular passage is, is talking to Christians in the church. It's, it's, there's a concern about the problems of this within church. So I want us to think primarily not just about how do we apply this individually, but how do we think about this as a church? How do we guard against the world's selfish ambition and the envy as members of a church? What are the dangers that we face? Now, there's, there's lots of ways we face this danger. But here's two particular, two angles on it that I think we need to be aware of. We need to recognize. Here we go. There's two dangers for us as a church to fall into. And they're, they're related. In one sense, they're two sides of the same coin. Uh, we can think about productivity as a church instead of discipleship. It's easy for our selfish ambitions as a church to slip into product, worldly productivity thinking. That's in if we do more, we'll be better off. Doing more, achieving more, more programs, more whistles and bells, more people, more numbers, bigger budget, bigger staff team, bigger car park, multi-story, bigger flashing sign out the front. It's, it's easy to think that bigger and more productive, more stuff happening is better. But let me, let me be clear that there's a very big danger that that's just driven by selfish ambition, isn't it? We can want to do more and have more happening because it can feel like us that we're part of something more important, something that's more successful, that's more flashy. And the danger happens, not that more in itself isn't bad, the danger happens when these things are pursued at the cost of real discipleship, of people growing in that wisdom seeing things God's way and living out things as he sees them. Helping people be more like Jesus. Now, there's a reality, isn't there, that we want to do, we want to do more of that discipleship. We want to have more people growing as disciples in Christ. That would be wonderful. And so more isn't bad on its own, but it's just when busyness, and 
more stuff happening is the measure rather than the discipleship itself. And that is a real danger that churches fall into. The second thing here is that we can fall into the trap of thinking about church with a consumer mindset rather than thinking about church as family. That is, we think about church as something we come to benefit from, something that I'm receiving something good from. I'm receiving something. That's my primary, primary way of engaging with church. It's about what I take away, the service I'm being provided with, rather than church being about a community of people, a community of God's people, a family. When we fall into this trap, it's very easy to think come to church in a critical and judgmental spirit and we sing, I didn't like three out of, three out of four songs we sang today. Therefore, this church has failed me. Or I didn't like what we had from morning tea today. They're trivial examples. But that's the, that's the attitude we can fall into if you start down this track. The selfish ambition that thinks, what do I want most out of a church? What do, what's going to make me feel good in church? What's going to best address my needs? That becomes primary. And so my preferences about songs or morning tea or about what time Bible study meets, like those things, they, they take the top spot. And I don't consider the family of God as important. Don't consider the relationships. I consider what I'm getting out of it. Now, of course, Church benefits us in many ways. It's good for us. And we want to be a church that is a positive experience. We want to be a church, don't we, that one gospel family that's overflowing with joy in Jesus. Our joy is positive. We want that. But they have to go together, don't they? It has to be the joy that comes as we grow as part of the family, not the the temporary superficial happiness that comes when one of my preferences are ticked off. That's not what church is about. Uh, sadly, too many people fall into that trap and you know what happens? They end up going to church for a little while and then, oh, I thought it was good, but then this person and this person didn't affirm me in the way that I was expecting and the sermon it went for two minutes longer than what I'd like. And it's easy to fall into that trap and they go, well, maybe I'll try somewhere else. And I like the energy of this church for a while. But then I'll find some things that irritate me and it can become a cycle. People just shift through churches, just looking for the next big thing, the next thing that's going to please them. And they can put spiritual language on it. but ultimately it comes from an attitude of selfishness about my ambition, what I want, rather than what it means to be part of the family of God.
Here's two very big dangers for us as a church to guard against. Now, uh, I thought what I'd give you just a chance to think about is, is reflecting on these two dangers. Can you think about how these might lead to conflict in churches? Can you think how might people coming from these different angles of, at church, how might they be led to quarrel, to have disputes? Because it happens constantly in churches. Just take a little moment uh, to, to consider. Maybe you'd like to share with the person who's next to you. How would you expect to see this flow out into a dispute in a church? Take a moment. How are you going? Has anyone, has anyone actually seen these play out in, and lead to disputes in church? Yes, several people. I expect, I, I have never, I've never heard of someone being killed in church over one of these things, as James mentions killing. But I have heard about churches where there's been physical, physical violence between members of the church because they are caught up in these, these issues. Their selfish ambition of what they think they need to get out of church is conflicted with someone else's selfish ambition, what they want out of church. And there's, because they're both driven from this ungodly wisdom, there's no room to be considerate, to be submissive, to be peace-loving. And then quarrels and fights reign. And people get burned and leave, and it's usually not people who are involved in the quarrel. Churches split and happens again and again and again. It's been happening thousands of years, hasn't it? Now, there's good reasons for churches to split. There's good reasons to leave a church. I'm not saying that. There's no, there's no case for that. But too often, it's selfishness. It's this worldly wisdom that drives people at those times. Friends, hear the warning of James and don't be deceived. There's wisdom from God and there's wisdom from the world. And in the church, in God's house, it is clear which one is suitable. Let us be people who are pursuing the wisdom that comes down from heaven. The wisdom that is, first of all, pure then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this warning in James. Please help us to be on guard against worldly wisdom. Help us to fight against that as individuals, seeking to put out envy and selfish ambition from our hearts. And please help us to guard against it as a church. Please 
protect us from falling into the trap of valuing productivity over discipleship. Please protect us from coming to church as consumers rather than family members. We pray this in the name of the one who has become wisdom from you, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.